0: Welcome to All The Things with Monique Dusson from
1: the Center for Biblical Unity and Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of All The Things. I am Monique Dusson. I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom, and this is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. And tonight's show is brought to you
2: by Theology Mom, the Center for Biblical Unity, Family 210 Clothing, and
0: Impact 360. And once again, you can go to family210.com and check out our family's designs. This is one that I did a while back for Theology Mom. It's called Created to Reign. You can look for that design Uh, That one's just kind of inspired by the two bookends of scripture of Genesis and Revelation of uh, what we have been created to do. So go check it out. Family210.com. A portion of every sale goes toward either helping the ministry or helping our family. Yes. So. All right.
2: Now we can get into the show. I am super excited because we are talking about just war is there ever a time for just war or is just war an oxymoron? Is that something that actually just doesn't make sense? When I think about war, um, what you entitled the show was, you know, war, what is it good for? And that, if you're not familiar, is a song from, I want to say, the 60s and it's the Vietnam the temp- War. Temptations, yeah. Um, and so it, it, from the Temptations? Yeah, that's the original group. Oh,
0: I didn't realize that. I uh, thought it was a line from a Seinfeld episode. No,
2: I just know that the song is. It, it was in protest to the Vietnam War. That's right. And, you know, talked about. You know, can't. Is there any time for war? We're just really sending people off to yeah. die. So, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing.
0: That was the answer. That yeah.
2: was yeah. That was their answer to to the question. But today we look at things like October seventh and. You know the the televising of the the attack on Israel by Hamas, and you know now we see wars like Ukraine and Israel in in yeah. Gaza and Hamas and all of this, and people are asking questions on both sides of the fence of sure, you know, should we have war? Do we have the right
0: to defend ourselves? Yes, and increasing international pressure. Against Israel to for a ceasefire mm-hmm. with with Hamas and and I mean we
2: see this in the church I, I think culture is going to have their own level of confusion but in the church we actually believe that there are answers and ways in which we can pursue scripture to actually give us you know hope and answers in some of these things and so that's our goal today yeah. and having Dr Patterson on is to really dig into the conversation of yeah. war and just.
0: Yeah. And so um, I first encountered Dr. Patterson. Here's his book, A Basic Guide to the Just War Tradition, Christian Foundations and Practices. And this is kind of his more lay level introduction to the topic. He has a more academic treatment also available. But I first uh, encountered him at our time at the Evangelical Theological Society meetings last November. I went to his session on just war theory. He's the president.
2: Well, I was listening to gender confusion. You were at just war. Okay.
0: Good <laughs> okay. to you know. Yeah. So he's, Dr. Patterson is the president of the Religious Freedom Institute. And so we he graciously agreed to come on and talk to us about a Christian perspective on war and peace and everything in between. So welcome, Dr. Patterson. Hello.
1: Hello. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
2: Well, thank Thank you you. so much. Thank you so much for being with us. Can you please give us a brief, like two minute introduction on who you are, the work that you're doing, your military background, and help our audience to become more acquainted with you?
1: Well, thanks. Uh, My name is Eric Patterson, and I'm kind of a foreign policy academic. I spent time teaching at Christian colleges, Vanguard University in California. I was at Georgetown University, the Catholic University for several years, and then at Regent University in Virginia Beach as Dean of the School of Government. I've spent some time working at the US State Department and uh, as a reservist in the Air National Guard. And I'd say that one of the things that, uh, and, and, and most of the courses I've taught have been about international security, how to think about the religious role, religious dynamics that happen in international life, whether it's terrorism. Or Mother Teresa and 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 her nuns caring for the poor. There's a lot of religious elements to what happens all around the world. And one of the things that I've been most interested in over time, and it was really influenced by my time at the State Department's Bureau of Political and Military Affairs, was how do you end a war? How do you pick up the debris from a war? And how do you not have a war start again? And we in the United States, we've just been so blessed. Our wars have actually been pretty short. They end on it. They start on a certain date. They end on a certain date, and everybody goes home. And as as tragic as World War One was, as tragic as World War Two was, we're used to that type of conflict. What we're not used to is the type of conflict that people in Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Congo, Burundi, Rwanda, some Sudan, so many people around the world. The kind of conflict that they've experienced is a war ends, and then it flares back up in eighteen to twenty four months, and then it ends. And then it flares up another two years later and there's this cycle of violence that is so destructive on people's lives on the infrastructure of their societies they just never get out of war or the rumors of war and it's it's how do we grapple with that and what does the christian just war tradition say about what a a real peace looks like that's what's motivated my work
2: wow thank you so much i think your background is really going to be beneficial in helping us to understand what this conversation is all about and hopefully give us just a little bit more footing um, historically and from Christian tradition, but most importantly, scripturally, on where do we as believers stand or where does the scripture stand in some of these conversations and how can we think about it
0: better? Yeah, I think um, when I think about war, I think about it as a consequence of the fall, most most broadly. and. We even see in scripture, you know, war is just kind of part of the fallen human con- condition. And yet, like you I really like what you said that so often um, wars can just kind of drag on and on and steal a nation's time and, and treasure and resources the, the The long history of hu- humanity though is that one group of people conquers another group of people and then makes them slaves. And what we see in the the Western tradition is quite different than that. And it made me wonder what the impact of Christianity has been on the just War tradition and developing that because, we do tend to see more in the West, be- beginnings and ends of war, and that there's a kind of a civil way of conducting war and, and certain rules, and we do certain things that we don't do other things. And I'm wondering if there's kind of a an impact that the Christian worldview has had on how we do war.
1: Well, it, it really is true that, and I'm gonna give kind of a gloss, a quick 2000 years of history, The early church, early Christians in the second, third, fourth centuries, as they started to reflect on their place in society, they they drew directly from the Bible, from Romans 13, from the examples of Joseph and Daniel in public service, and Hezekiah, David and Joshua and others. And they they just believed that in the New Testament era, we would have these same models of leadership uh, of people in high office that would have to make decisions about security and justice in a fallen world. And over the past 2,000 years, it's actually been Christians who've set the stage for the principles that limit war and destruction, whether it's St. Ambrose or St. Augustine in the 4th and early 5th centuries, or a half millennium later, Thomas Aquinas, and then several centuries later, Vittoria and Sepulveda. And let me just mention a couple of these principles. Augustine had a lot to say about that churchmen like him fought spiritual warfare through prayer, But that soldiers and political leaders, like a guy named Boniface that he wrote a famous letter to, that they had to fight temporal enemies to the peace on behalf of justice. And so this idea that that legitimate government authorities can fight in terms of a just cause, protection, prevention, defense, when they're acting with right intentions, and right intentions are things like neighbor love, the protection or the defense of the vulnerable, not greed, not hate, not lust. Later in time, other Christian writers talked about protecting the innocent. We call it non-combatant immunity, or distinction, or discrimination. Today, you distinguish or you discriminate between legitimate targets and illegitimate targets. And by the way, it was a famous Catholic theologian who wrote a set of letters and speeches saying that the the Spanish inroads into the Western Hemisphere. It may be okay for one empire and another to go to war but that the Spanish should never attack clerics, families, harmless agricultural folk, in other words, farmers and civilians. Th- those are Christians writing this 500 years ago. And the same is true in the past century. So these, these principles have been drawn, valuing human life, but recognizing that public authorities have a responsibility to thwart evil, to promote justice, and to promote security.
2: So in in hearing that and taking uh, this, you know, really quick 2000 year glimpse back at history, when we get to something like the Vietnam War and a song is made that says, you know, what is war good for? Absolutely nothing. I think you would probably take a different position on that. And you mentioned, you know pillars of, of war or just war theory and pillars or ways to think about war. What are some of those pillars for a just war theory, and where do we begin to think about
1: just war? Yeah, I appreciate that this podcast is so much about biblical thinking, right? Biblical worldview. And so let's take a step back from war for just a moment and think about what are the biblical principles of what we might call statecraft about law, politics, and society. And about national defense. So the Bible, first of all, has a lot to say about the idea of governance. In other words, whether it's in the family or in the church or in civil institutions, what we call government, the Bible has a lot to say about the importance of wise leadership, of leadership that counts the cost, that looks out for the common good, whether it's in Romans 13 or the examples from the Old Testament. And tied to that is the idea of vocation. We believe that people have callings, and some of those callings are public service callings to protect and defend in law enforcement, to be a public official like Joseph or Daniel, to be in the military. And so we we have people who God calls to protect and defend the common good, the rest of us. The Bible has a lot to say about justice, whether it's in the Proverbs, whether it's in the in the the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And this idea about protecting the weak, about protecting the vulnerable. And how do you protect those people from criminals, from terrorists? Well, of course, you need law enforcement, and the military to do that in a restrained way. Bible talks about neighbor love throughout the Bible. Love God, love your neighbor. And what does that look like in society? It's one thing for me to love my next door neighbor and to be, be compassionate wanting to get to know them, offering hospitality, sharing, listening, but how do we do that in our vocations? How does the president, how does a prime minister, how do they love their neighbors? And and again, a big, big part of that is that we need warriors who are guardians. We need warriors who are defenders and protectors of the common good and who pursue justice. Augustine talked about a just cause is righting the past wrong, preventing future wrongdoing, Or punishing wrongdoers, and those are all restrained and limited. I I could go on, but you can see how the basic principles throughout the Bible really get point us in the direction of a society that is safe, that's peaceful, but that it has guardians to protect.
0: Just to kind of draw out some of those implications a little bit more to the Christian worldview is that people might not have a, a complete awareness that. The idea of humans being created in the image of God is so unique in the world. You know, this is not a concept that comes out of atheism or Buddhism or Hinduism. This is a concept that comes out of the Judeo-Christian worldview. That humans have inherent value, dignity, and worth. And because of that, they are worth protecting. We don't exploit them. We don't use rape as a war tactic. We don't use kidnapping as a war tactic or enslaving others as a war tactic. These are the things that, to use the verbiage in God's law, that that the surrounding nations did. These are things that pagans do. But as God's people, if we're going to conduct a war... He gives us some, some principles of how we ought to treat our fellow humans. And I think that it's important for us to understand that Christianity has made a unique contribution to the issue of war um, based on our worldview. We, we might not even be aware of that. The idea of that you mentioned of Romans 13, of the state being God's deacon of justice, you know, of bearing the sword to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. I think that these are... We need to have stop and have an appreciation for how radically different these principles are from other world views. I don't know if you want to add to that.
1: No, I think, that, I think that this is very, very important. The early church were the ones who picked up babies that had been cast aside because they were unloved and unvaluable. The early church showed the, the value of not just men, but also of women. The early church showed the value of, of, of the slaves that they could be fully participating or servants in the, in the Christian church. And by the way, all of these roots were in the Old Testament as well. We see the value of Rahab. We see the value of Ruth. We see the value of others uh, throughout the Old Testament. And so the the Bible has this story, this unfolding story about humans created in the image of God. And that is a motivating factor for how we should be thinking about the ethics and the morality of war. And, And let me mention two ways this plays out one is thinking right about anger and the second is thinking right about love. On the one hand, it is entirely appropriate to have righteous indignation against injustice, what you might call righteous anger. That's appropriate against human trafficking, against slavery, against Russia's deprivations, against Ukraine, against what happened on October 7th. But a a different type of anger is what Augustine called iniquitous anger. I would call it hateful wrath. To give us a different view, and that is vengeful, hateful, dehumanizing. It's appropriate to have righteous indignation about injustice, but we should never have dehumanizing wrath that wants to obliterate enemies that we hate. That is sin. That is wrong. And it and it that distinction between two forms of anger is very very important.
2: Can you expand a little bit more about the maybe the historical precedent? for just war, you know, you've mentioned Aquinas, you've mentioned Augustine, but there's also like times in the church where knights were prayed for and blessed. And, you know, people wanna bring in the conversation of the Crusades or the Crusaders and, you know, all of that. Can you just expand just a little bit more on the historical precedent?
1: Yeah, so let me just say that that there's at least three distinct ways that a Christian might think about the use of force. One is pacifism, and we can talk about that if you like. But throughout Christian history, it's just a tiny, tiny group of Christians who've held to pacifism. And the reason is, is because we're called to live in this world, and God calls people to these public service vocations. And so pacifists have largely, if they've had a theological position, they've said, no, there's a whole realm of society that we're not going to be involved in. We can't be a judge. We can't be a magistrate. We can't be a policeman. We can't be a fireman. We can't be in this military. We can't do anything where there's any end to the use of force. Christians have realized that that's that's actually not the teaching of the New Testament, where we're supposed to be salt and light in all licit or all moral vocations. Tied to that is this this idea that really this, this kind of motivating ethic about, so how do I love my neighbor? How do I love my neighbor as myself? What does that look like? And C.S. Lewis brought this together in a really uh, almost funny quote. He was talking about Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, Jesus famously said, turn the other cheek. And Lewis writes that the people who were sitting there listening to Jesus's sermon, they knew that he was not talking about war. They knew that he was poking them about what it was like to live as a Jew in a local village and, and not let your ego, not let your vanity, not let your pride get stepped on if someone slightly offended you. In other words, you should take that with humility, a kind of a slap across the face or someone stepping on your toes. That's what Jesus was talking about, that type of neighbor love. And then Lewis goes on to say, they knew that Jesus didn't mean that if a homicidal maniac is going to murder a child, I should step out of the way. How would you love your neighbor? You'd step in the way to stop harm to a child. And and that ethic is what animates this tradition.
0: I, th- I think it's so important because... It, and I want to continue this conversation about the early church and 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 that sort of a thing because we see even in the New Testament that military personnel were among the first early converts into the faith. I mean, we think about... Jesus's interaction with the centurion, we think about... um, The centurion at the cross. Yeah, the Philippian jailer. And, you know, are people who were employed by the Roman government, who were employed in the military, were part of the church from the beginning. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or information about how that played out in the early church. Were they expected to... Leave the military um, upon their baptism. Like you know, how did that work?
1: Yeah, there's there's a uh, there's a there's a tale that just isn't true, but is often told that goes like this: the early church was entirely pacifist for 300 years, and then when Christian Christianity was formally allowed in the Roman Empire in 315 AD, that it suddenly took over, and then there was a fusion of church and state over the next generation. And then Christianity through the Roman Catholic Church just kind of took over the world. And it's a and and was was morally degraded in a sense by its marriage to politics. And that that little myth is just not entirely true. Like you said, we have we have evidence from the New Testament. John the Baptist did not tell soldiers to lay down their weapons. He told them to be content with their wages and to not oppress the common people. Jesus did not tell anyone. Drop your drop your drop your soldierly vocation or your public service vocation if you are going to follow me. Now of course, he did pull in one tax collector to be one of his intimate 12 disciples, but he had made no rule about this. It'd be like saying, Well, Jesus told all fishermen to quit their jobs, right? That because it was an illicit activity. Of course not. And Paul and Peter tell us to pray for, for people in these positions of authority. There are people who work in Caesar's household that are greeted by Paul. There's a lawyer even that's greeted by Paul. So like you said, what we think happened is, is that people from all walks of life came to faith. Some did, if possible, try to move beyond their 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 public service vocations, but most could not because they had sworn an oath to serve for a certain period of time. And, and so what it, they had to manage in a very, very sinful world as a very small religious minority, how they were going to handle that. And we have some evidence based on what the Jerusalem council decided in the book of Acts. You may recall that after Cornelius, that Roman centurion, and some other Gentiles became Christians, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem had a council. They had a meeting. What do we do with these Gentiles? Because some, what Paul called the Judaizers, wanted them to take on the Jewish dietary and other laws and be circumcised. Do we force a Gentile male convert be circumcised and to give up his normal habits of eating and take a Jewish kosher law? The answer was no. But we are going to ask them to do two things. One is flee from sexual immorality. And the second is to avoid food offered to idols. In other words, avoid sexual immorality. And second, try to get out of the idolatrous system that was a part of, of all of Roman life. And this was particularly hard for those in the military, because by Roman law, they were not allowed to marry, at least not in their first decade of service. So they often had common law wives, and prostitution was rampant, and sexual mores were quite different in the Roman Empire. So they were, they, were, they were supposed to stop those behaviors. And second, to be avoiding the idolatrous practices of the time. And frankly, that would have been hard, but it would have been doable over time as we know more and more Christians came to the faith. I think we have the example of Naaman from the Old Testament, where he was serving the true God, but at times might have to bow in the presence of the emperor who was leaning on his arm. We think that Christians in that early time did the best they could to avoid idolatrous practices and avoid sexual immorality, and the church grew.
0: Um, I want to go back to kind of some of the historical streams of just war theory. I know we've touched briefly on the pacifist streams, which are kind of more in the Amish, Mennonite, brethren, pacifist, Anabaptist tradition, but it seems like most Christian traditions have a place for the military service, for just war theory in the Anglican tradition, um, in Presbyterianism, Methodism, and even my Orthodox friends um, have members of their parishes that serve in the military. You mentioned some Catholic thinkers earlier. It seems like the broad Christian tradition has been to allow a place for military service in just war theory.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. The Orthodox Catholic, the Reformed traditions, Presbyterian, uh, the Wesleyan traditions, at the Lutheran tradition, uh, uh, most Baptists in the Western world have all uh, have believed in some sort of restrained use of force for the common good. So we find this in John Calvin, we find it in Martin Luther, we find it in John Wesley, we find it in Roger Williams. You just really find it throughout Christianity. Uh, and, and so almost all of our evangelical churches in America today, they may not really realize. A non-denominational church may not fully realize its what its intellectual tradition is, but almost all of them, with the exception of that very, very small group of, of people in the Mennonite traditions and related traditions, the vast majority of Americans, the vast majority in the West, um, they're part of those traditions. And for pastors or seminarians who are interested in this, we published a book about a year ago that's, that's at, that, it's at the seminary level called Just War in Christian Traditions with J. Daryl Charles. And what it does is it actually looks at those denominational traditions as a resource for pastors and for seminarians. Um, so it has been largely, largely shared. The other thing that's been shared is there really are few examples of all-out Christian, in a sense, holy war in our history. Now the Crusades did happen. The Crusades were largely kind of geopolitical contests after after Europe had been invaded uh, and the Holy Land had been invaded by Muslim armies starting the 7th century AD but what may but the crusades are different than just war in the sense that a religious authority justified going to war and killing based on his authority as the pope and the the vast majority of Christians uh, over the past 2000 years have not felt that that's legitimate authority in other words that just a pope, because of his his office, can decree a form of total war that even justifies slaying innocents, children, et cetera. We see that almost all just war thinkers for 2,000 years have seen that type of behavior as beyond the pale.
2: Thank you. We're going to take a quick break and show you a brief video from our sponsor, Impact 360.
0: Everywhere I looked, everything I read, all the things the world told me about who I was, what I should like, it was all there. The thinking had been done for me. But what if you can't shake the feeling that
2: you are destined to be something else, someone else?
0: Someone other than just popular. Or unpopular. The smart one, the jock, the Christian, the sinner. In the world today, how does anybody know who, or what to be, or what to even know? I found those answers and more.
2: I learned how to think through the superficial problems and transcendent issues before me.
0: And begin to understand what God has revealed and why faith is not blind. What I believe in my heart, from my experiences, to know and respond to endless challenges of my faith with love and with confidence.
2: So that I may listen and engage, because I know what I believe is true. (music) A community where you are transformed in your character as you discover your identity in Christ.
0: And your God-given calling. It's not only who you are, but where you should be. A community where you are cultivated as a leader. Where you will learn how to live a life of service to others as you follow Jesus Christ.
1: The Impact 360 Institute is a community of experiential and holistic learning where you develop confidence in what you have always believed in your heart to be the truth. Then, take what you know about God and what you know about yourself and live as an agent of change in your own community.
0: Know Jesus more deeply. Be transformed in your character. Live a life of kingdom influence.
2: Know. Be. Live. Live.
0: I wanted to take a minute to tell you about something really cool. It's called the commuter Bible. Now, I know that many of you are gearing up to start your read through the Bible plan. Maybe you've done it in years past and you just want to have a refresher. The commuter Bible is a wonderful way for you to listen to the entire Bible in a year. But it's delivered to you as short podcasts that you can listen to them as you commute. They're delivered to you Monday through Friday. It's pretty cool. They have three plans for you to choose from. There's a read through the New Testament plan, read through the Old Testament, or read through the entire Bible. So if you're reading through the New Testament, you gotta have a short commute, you know, maybe 15 minutes. You wanna read through the entire Bible? Little bit longer commute. Maybe it's a 25 minute commute. Either way, all the plans are totally free. You can go check out their website, commuterbible.org. It's so cool. It's the whole Bible in a year as a podcast it even has little introductory notes to set the context and music to help break up the monotony of the the speaking it is free on your favorite podcast app go check it out commuterbible.org Make sure to check
2: out Impact 360 if you have a young person who is looking to either do a gap year or to grow deeper in their understanding of their Christian worldview. Impact 360 is a great place to send your teen or young adult. Now, Dr. Patterson, I want to hit on something that you just mentioned, and that was about like innocent civilians. I'm wondering how we should be thinking about innocent civilians because when we think of something like World War II, I think the estimates are that somewhere around 3% of the entire world's population was lost during World War II because of, you know, fighting and bombs and, you know, all of this. How do we think about innocent life lost? Doesn't that go directly against Jesus' teaching and, you know, how do we treat our neighbor? You mentioned earlier that, you know, neighbor love is something that the Bible talks about deeply. How should a soldier or how should we as Christians think about the soldier who's going in and killing an innocent civilian?
1: Yeah, so the, as we said, the just war tradition really starts with the question, when is it moral or just to go to war? And it's authorities acting on the just cause with the right intention. And there's some important secondary criteria as well. But once that decision is made, then on the battlefield, we restrain war with three principles. The first one is military necessity. It's the idea that our troops should use uh, whatever means that are are limited and reasonable and legal in this encounter to try to win. In other words, we're not sending our soldiers who are citizens as well to just be cannon fodder. They should try to win in this battle, but they should do so using Weapons that are proportional to the threat. We're not going to drop a nuclear bomb to take out a sniper, for instance. So, proportional directed activity. And it's restrained also by that principle again of discrimination or distinction. We're going to try to distinguish between legitimate targets, military bases, military convoys, other foreign soldiers, terrorists, versus private property, houses of worship, libraries, infrastructure, and of course, civilians. Now, Gustin does remind us the evil in war is not death, because we believe that all die and then go to judgment. But the indiscriminate killing of non-combatants is 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 a great wrong. And it's problematic also because of because of the way that it engenders hatred that can prolong a war. So it's 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 we want to limit that. Some civilians will die in war. They'll die in war because they're making munitions. To shoot back at the enemy. They'll die in war because they're in a factory that's close to a military base, or they're working on a military base, or because their country has put munitions factories or armaments actually in a city, as the Japanese and the Germans did. So it's going to be in a, in a larger scale conflict, it's going to be impossible to stop all civilian casualties. So the operating principle should really be the most important one, really comes back to intentions. Is the is the military activity we're doing with a goal to win the war, to establish the peace, and we're trying as much as possible with an intention uh, towards a real peace at the end of this war? We're, we're we're trying to we're trying to win right here, or are we bombing because we hate them and we want to we 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 think that they're barbarous we we don't like their race or we want to take revenge because they bombed our cities in the first place. And so when you mentioned World War II, and I think you have to kind of go on a case by case basis. Was the bombing of, say, Dresden, was that was that caused because of it was a necessary military target, or the bombing got out of hand on the one hand, or was it bombed out of vengeance because Hitler had first bombed British cities, and that helps us kind of get at the moral quandaries in a situation.
2: I think that's so important to help us think through you know, when civilians, innocent civilians, do die. And looking at um, how Christians have thought about this and a just war approach would be, you know, we're not going in to kill, you know, innocent civilians. And innocent civilians do die when, you know, just bringing it to today and Hamas, when, you know, bombs or, or weaponry are hidden among your civilians, among your people, And now we're going in to, you know, clear things out. Yes, it, it, you know, civilians will die, but it's also, to me, a level of wickedness to go and put your civilians directly in the, the, the way of harm.
0: Like putting some of your military equipment in the basement of a hospital. Yeah. Or storing it in an elementary school. This is where the lines become very difficult of, well, is this a civilian target or is this a military target? That becomes very foggy.
1: Yeah, you're right. Um, the the This war in Gaza after October 7th really highlights some of these principles. I mean, the first one is that the Hamas attack was not directed towards a military base. Um, I've had people tell me that Hamas was, that was justified in doing this because there are several thousand Palestinian men in Israeli prisons, but this was not a large-scale jailbreak. Instead, they mowed down anyone in their path. And men, women, children, regardless of age, regardless of nationality, regardless of religion, if you were a Muslim, if you were a Christian, if you were a Jew in their way that morning, you could have been raped, you could have been uh, tortured, you could have been kidnapped, you could have been killed. And and so that that level of indiscriminate violence, and I did the numbers, rough numbers. This would be as if we had lost over forty two thousand Americans on mm-hmm. nine eleven. That's the type of scale when you think about Israel's just a country of about nine million people, and what is an appropriate response to having your citizens kidnapped? To having uh, in the video footage, which remember r- the Hamas fighters took video of their depredations and then put it up essentially on YouTube with the soundtracks like the Braveheart soundtrack, glorifying the violence and dehumanizing the Jewish civilians that they killed. And so we see a really ugly pattern there. And of course, the second ugly part of this is the Hamas leadership who have famously said in interviews that they think it's perfectly legitimate to use their own people as human shields. Uh, And that's because they have a twisted um, ideology about the human person. That's far, far from a Christian worldview. Uh, of course, Israel is in a very difficult case in this situation, and it is true. There's been a significant loss of life. And the question that I always come back to is, If, I, if are Israeli leaders thinking about the generational hatreds for their grandchildren, for their great-grandchildren? Uh, what are the steps that can be taken to be thinking about not having generational hatreds for eternity in this part of the world, what, what types of restraint, what type of activities can be taken? By the way, the Israeli military historically has been very restrained. Before they bomb a building, they send text messages into the entire area. You've got 10 minutes. You better get out. We're coming. And they've done that in this war as well. So there's a, there's a lot of elements in a, in a particularly confined and dangerous space.
0: I think that the thing that Israel is being confronted with by world pressure is the question of proportionality that you mentioned earlier. Is, Is Israel's response to the Hamas attacks against civilians proportional to what happened? And I think that's a very difficult question at times of, you know, what's the standard we're going to use for proportionality? What will that look like? And how do we know when we're going over that standard?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this is a very, very difficult case. I think one of the elements of Israel's vigorous response in the early days has been to repeatedly send a deterrent message, a message of deterrence to Hezbollah, which is a Shia uh, army, really, that's based in Lebanon and that has attacked Israel in the past. One of the reasons israel's been so robust is to say if you step over the line in the north we will crush you and so there is a a a part of a very vigorous response is deterrence to iran hezbollah and to other types of militias in the region the israel is not doing everything perfect they're not doing everything right there's a tremendous loss of life Uh, i regularly read the jewish newspapers there's, there's deep concern in some quarters about the, the amount of loss of life. And for instance, that it was hard for there to be a release vow in the South to Egypt. Part of that's Egypt's policy as well. Um, where this started was with Hamas's terrible activities on October 7th. Question for Israeli policymakers is, how do we take steps to protect our own citizens? How do we, over time, take steps that make this a place where everybody can live? In peace and safety.
2: You know, and I'm no just war expert, but my hood mentality would generally go to say, you know, if someone has kind of promised that there will be no peace, that, you know, from, you know, river to sea, like, you know, that we are going to destroy you, that there will be no peace until we are back in this land and and that the Jews are gone. To me, I think the the conversation of proportionality may change. You know, are we still talking about something in proportion to what happened on October 7th? Mm -hmm. Or are we talking about a proportionality in response to the promise that you've made and the history by which we can look and oh, say, "Well, could happen yeah, well, the history of what maybe has happened, yeah, and then looking forward into, well, let's let's talk about proportionality in response to what could happen if we don't do something now. And so when I think about proportionality, i'm i I tend to think of in regards to Israel specifically, something that is it's different. I don't know that we can just take october 7th and say okay they killed this many of our people now we're going to go and do something in proportion to that i think that their endeavor is something quite different than that and looking at how do we create a peaceful state how do we protect our people and do so for the long haul not just something that you know in two years or in 10 years we're going to turn around and be in the same predicament again i don't know it's just my my thoughts
1: (laughs) Now, so often proportionality is thought of just in terms of kind of the right here and the right now. And you're correct that we, we need to be thinking about this, not in terms just of the attack, but in terms of the greater threat. And this also helps us to think about what peace should look like, because a third question in the just war tradition has to do with, so, so what does is, what is an enduring and stable peace look like? And some of us have proposed that you start with order, kind of basic security. And then you build towards justice, and over time you build towards conciliation, the idea that former adversaries can look at one another. They may not like each other, but they can at least imagine living in the same world. Well, in the case of Hamas, from their charter and from everything that they've said, they actually cannot imagine a world in which there's a a Jewish or an Israeli state. And so they're, they're, they're going to continue to cause violence to stop that so it's very difficult to imagine a change for the hamas leadership uh, uh in any way israel though nonetheless has to be thinking okay so what are the steps we take to establish a secure order for ourselves in our neighborhood and then how do we take steps towards a more conciliatory situation with our neighbors over time you know why, why did hamas do this in part because israel has been coming to agreements with its neighbors, formal agreements with three of the Arab countries around it. And and and, and that's rooted in a longer tradition of the Camp David Accords of nineteen seventy nine, where Egypt and Israel haven't gone to war in a generation against one another. Hamas wants to blow up these new so called Abrahamic Accords and stop Israel from having deeper relationships of peace with its neighbors.
2: And so then looking at you know, the principles that you've laid out when we look at, um, you know, proportionality, or when we look at things like discrimination and, you know, all of that, do you see the war in Israel, you know, with Hamas as being a just war?
0: Well, yeah, let me just broaden that question uh, even a little bit more is that I can kind of see the case for just war theory in theory, but it seems premised on the idea that all wars are just and I'm not sure that all wars are just and hmm. some people do go to war for to capture other people's land and treasure and it's not always for just causes of protecting the innocent and punishing the guilty you know I think that's a little more clear in things like World War II a little less clear in situations like Vietnam and so a question you know that i'm building on with what you're saying there is what do we do in situations where the war isn't just some people have profound questions about even whether the war in israel itself is just and you know military resources and backing and staffing i don't know maybe just mm-hmm. help, help me oh, Let's go ahead yeah add to that
1: well, oh, let's, let's look at a different example, and that is the Russia-Ukraine war, because we're coming up on the two-year anniversary next month of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what was the cause of it? Russia said it was trying to denazify a elected government, whose president, by the way, is a, is a secular Jewish guy named Zelensky, that they were going to liberate the spiritual homeland of Russia in the Crimea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is this is all just hogwash. That it's naked aggression. Russia sending in its its military forces to take another foothold in in really the breadbasket of Europe, one of the most uh, agriculturally rich areas. And I think there's even more to it about not wanting Ukraine to be increasingly in the West's orbit, things of that nature. But note that ukraine the song that you started this with war what is it good for i think the fight by the ukrainian people shows what war is good for and that is self defense and justice the many people didn't think that ukraine could stand up to russia and yet they valiantly did and what did that mean it meant it meant stopping the russian troops much much earlier than was expected it meant that civilians were able to move from the eastern part of the country to the west. Some went to Poland and other places. So it, it created a, a humanitarian corridor that saved lives. What else was it good for? Well, it's reinforced this democratically elected government's authority within its own country and a sense of Ukrainian patriotism that I think over a long period of time will pay dividends. Note what the Ukrainian military has not done. They've not sent suicide bombers into Russian cities, they haven't blown up cafes in Moscow or St. Petersburg. They haven't sent attacks, drone attacks, in civilian quarters of Russia. They've largely fought this war, this war on their own land or on the sea against the Russian military. And so, it's it's a terrible thing that Russia attacked Ukraine. But that that famous World War II or uh, that famous Vietnam-era song forgets that oppressed peoples. Rather than becoming slaves, can fight for their self defense, and that's a good thing.
2: When when you were asking the question, what I immediately thought was just because somebody a, a nation may be fighting unjustly doesn't mean that our response as a different nation needs to be unjust or that there's no need for just war theory like someone can you know like if we take if we take the example of Russia and Ukraine someone can do something that is unjust but we can have a just response and the just response being fighting for justice fighting for the citizenry fighting for you know the the innocent lives that are here and pushing back the evil that would otherwise infiltrate had we not participated in something that was just
0: Yeah, I think I buy that, um, you know, especially, like, thinking about the World War II example, like, Hitler's aggression into Poland and other countries, it was unjust. Our response to that, um, and England's response to that was, you know, hey, these aggressions are wrong, and then, you know, the Jews came also as part of that problem and trying to free them from the Holocaust which were, were I think, arguably just causes. My question, though, is that not all wars are that cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Like, the Vietnam War... Okay, allegedly, we were fighting against the creep of Marxism and the, that ideology, but it seems like sometimes things are done in the name of war that are unjust and then even the responses then become about land or treasure i don't know i'm i'm a skeptic because the bible tells me that humans are deeply sinful and and i'm not optimistic that um we will respond in a just way but maybe this is an argument to keep to encourage christians to be in the public square to be part of the public conversation being public servants, so that our worldview comes to bear on these things. So
2: are you optim, um, not optimistic that war can ever be just?
0: No, I it- think it can be just. I just am a skeptic that there's always a... that behind every war, that there's a just reason. I don't know.
2: I don't think that we're saying or that... And you can correct me if you need to. I don't think that what's being said is that behind every war is a just cause or just reason i think the the point is to say that hey look there is a way for christians to think about war Mm -hmm. that can be just that can say hey look there's a reason why my nation has to give you these hands and it's because we want to uphold the biblical tenets of things like the Imago Day, yeah, or you know, justice, and you know that we don't just go in and rape women and you know burn babies and things like that. Like, there's a way in which na- nations will fight, and there's a way in which we can do it, and a way in which we can think about it as believers that can help navigate the conversation where where we don't have to simply be pacifists, because if we're yeah. honest, even the pacifists benefit from war. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Let's
0: let know. Dr. Peterson
2: weigh in. I'm no expert.
1: You know, I think you've you've brought up, let me give two simple distinctions that are really profound that I've learned from others like J. Daryl Charles and Tim Demi, who are evangelical just war writers. The first one is the difference between private use of force or violence and public use of force in other words by public authorities so there really is a difference between you and your neighbor getting into fisty cuffs if you will or criminal violence by an individual criminal the mafia a terrorist in other words one on one outside of outside of a public service trained professional who's using force to stop a bad guy there really is a difference between a good a good policeman stopping a bad guy using a gun or using his baton or whatever that that really is different than a gangbanger beating somebody up. And and so there's a this the, the policeman represents public authority, not private violence. And tied to that distinction is a distinction between force and violence. Force is restrained, force is lawful, force is in the hands of appropriate authorities at whatever level. Violence is unrestrained, hateful, lawless. It's when someone who has authority acts out of bitter hatred way beyond. So we use words like police brutality in that case, or it's when a private citizen or an unauthorized individual uses violence wantonly out of hate, lust, torture, you know, that type of stuff. Distinguishing force, the legitimate force that a parent uses in their home, the legitimate force that law enforcement uses to protect and defend. And even the lethal force that soldiers may use, but that is limited and under right authority, is different than hate. By the way, for our younger listeners, just think about the difference between Luke Skywalker and Anakin Skywalker, who becomes Darth Vader. The one is constantly operating within restraint. He's worried about going too far to the dark side of the force. Luke at the Luke when he confronts his father in one of the movies, you know drops his lightsaber, he refuses to kill. How different is that than the guy full of hatred and anger that becomes Darth Vader? You can really see two different approaches right there from one of our great movie sagas.
0: Yeah, that's super helpful. So you're kind of putting groups like I like your example of gangs um, and private violence. I think that would be the same category of terrorists who might blow up innocent civilians in a bus or a cafe versus the, uh, the official authorities who are trying to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. So we don't want to fall into a mindset of saying all violence is wrong. No, some, sometimes we must use force in order to protect people but we differentiate because of the motivation behind it Mm -hmm. and the heart posture. But this, again, brings me back to the importance of the Christian worldview. It seems like so many of these ideas are rooted and grounded, whether people realize it or not, are rooted and grounded in Judeo-Christian sensibilities and mores. These things don't work in other worldview contexts unless they're borrowing from our worldview because our worldview is the one that says humans have inherent dignity so therefore we don't use rape as a means of
1: war these christian principles for the last two thousand years have been formalized into the law of armed conflict that almost every country has signed on to over the past century but they come from the ideas of authority right intention just cause proportionality and discrimination based on protecting human life. That idea of governance, of justice, of the Imago Dei, like you said, these are all rooted in a Christian worldview. And God and his sovereignty has allowed the Western world to, to to promulgate these on the international stage through the United Nations and through other laws. You know, Sometimes it's easy for us to say, you know, those laws don't always work. Not everyone follows them. Well, True, we live in a fallen world, but the fact that most countries have pledged in writing through treaties that they'll uphold those things—it's it, it, we shouldn't become skeptical of them. It it reminds us that that's the ideal that they would like to be treated with if they were attacked. Right? If my country's attacked, I want the aggressor to act with restraint. I want them to recognize our sovereignty. I want them to recognize the discrimination or distinction of our non-combatants if we're attacked. Well, that principle now animates international life. You know, that's a good thing for a fallen oh. world.
0: And I guess that's why we need to continue as Christians to be engaged in the public square. Yeah. So that we're acting as those agents of salt and light to keep those principles, you know, on the international stage.
2: I agree. I think um, one of the things that I really appreciated was the reality that, yes, even though these principles are, you know, largely based in the framework of of the Judeo-Christian framework, not everybody who participates with them are Christians. And so we will see things, you know, go amiss or go awry or um, not necessarily play out according to how Scripture would have it. And we don't want to, you know put our little peg on the earth and be like, you know, the Americans, we have it, you know, 100% right and things like that. So I I definitely appreciate the understanding that even though the scriptures lay out um, principles for just war and, and we can, you know, think about early Christians who taught on this and who have talked about this, we still are a nation also who, you know, have sinners and are made up of sinners as well.
0: Dr. Patterson, share with us um, about your work at the Religious Freedom Institute, how people can follow what you guys are doing and, and what it is that you are standing for there.
1: Yes. So I've been at the Religious Freedom Institute for the last five years, and our work here is to promote and advance religious freedom for everyone, everywhere. And what I mean by that is this. We believe that religious freedom is important because religion is important. God made us as religious, by being made in the imago day, by being made in the image of God, everybody across the world is is has a certain religious sentiment. And it's really between, we believe as Christians, that it's really between God and the individual to come to that encounter. Now, I'm a Christian. I'd like to see everybody come to Christ. And I believe that a part of that is that's between God and people. And so we fight against religious oppression in places like China, because we believe that people should be free to make those decisions about their religious faith and identity for themselves. They shouldn't be coerced to be in one religion or another or not in a religion by the state. We also fight against forms of violence. We don't believe that there's any justification in religion for violence. And so we look for broad coalitions, evangelicals, Catholics, Jews, Muslim, Hindus, and others to try to protect the human dignity of everybody here in the United States and abroad. A lot of our work is education. We educate military chaplains. We have a high school and a middle school curriculum on religious freedom that can be dropped into any classroom. It's five lessons on religious freedom in the American experience. We have a wonderful college program called Statesmanship and Religious Freedom, internship program, and of course, a number of other things as well. So we'd love for people to follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, or on Twitter. You can also learn about us and we have a lot of resources available at religiousfreedominstitute.org.
2: Very good. Thank you so much for being here. Please check out the Religious Freedom Institute at religiousfreedominstitute.org. And also make sure to pick up Dr. Patterson's book, Just War Tradition, A Basic Guide to the Just War Tradition. Here you make sure I'm on the right camera. (laughs) <laughs> Pick it up. You can order it on Amazon. Yep. Thank you so much, Dr. Patterson. It's
0: been a good conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, look forward to future conversations with you. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Happy New Year. Every New Year. I'm super glad that we did this conversation, and I thought I already knew a lot about Just War Theory, but I actually learned some things in that. I really appreciated his perspective on, like, not doing things out of hate mm-hmm. and retribution. But also thinking about the multi generational impacts of war. Yeah, and it gave me kind of an appreciation for why we did things even after World War II to help rebuild Germany mm-hmm. after we had just bombed it into oblivion. That our country invested in doing things to help rebuild the country so that we didn't build multi generational hate with yeah. them. So, it, for me, it it was helpful. I think it was helpful
2: for me as well. Um, I appreciated the distinction between this idea of maybe a restrictive force Mm -hmm. and just willy-nilly violence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's important for us to also, you know, think about in war, you know, willy-nilly violence is never the 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 good way to go or you know in a just war theory willy-nilly violence like we saw on on october seventh this rogue come in kill anyone do anything
0: blast it up on social media
2: yes yeah. that's not a just war tactic that's that's a rogue tactic that is wickedness and evil. That is not a restraining of force meant to restrain evil. That is a perpetuation of evil.
0: Yeah, that's good. The other thing I really grew in preparing for this show and having the conversation is I grew in my appreciation for the contribution of the Judeo-Christian worldview in changing how we do war. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I think about the ancient Assyrians who engaged in regularly in raping uh, as a war tactic, um, massive relocations, forced intermarriage between warring ethnic parties. I mean, they had all kinds of horrible war practices, uh, skinning people. We don't see that Mm -hmm. (laughs) now. And I-I think that I, I didn't... hadn't really connected those dots of... of the impact of understanding the basic humanity of even our political enemies. Yeah.
2: I also think it's important for us to remember the importance of Christians participating mm-hmm. in police force. And no, police aren't quote-unquote military, but I would see them as like a paramilitary, you it's know. A, a lot lot of of
0: enforcement. Yes.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm just saying that they're not, yeah. you know, in foreign land, going and fading or, you know, things like that. But, you know, that they also restrain evil and use um, a restraining force. And, you know, what does it mean for a Christian, a true Christian, who understands their faith to become involved in military or to become involved in the police or in government and to use our voice there and to also, you know, actually go and do the work and show what it means to actually live out the Judeo-Christian values Yeah, in something like war.
0: War is a tough issue. It, it is. It is a very tough, sad, complicated issue. But we hope you found this conversation helpful, and that you will write to us and let us know what you thought about it and what future topics uh, we might cover related to this that we didn't get to. So looking forward to more conversations with Dr. Patterson and his team. Yeah. at the Religious Freedom Institute. So thank you so much for watching and good night. God
2: bless.
0: Thanks for
1: listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.